As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Somewhere in the North African and Middle Eastern collective consciousness probably lies the potential for a second Arab Spring, a series of uprisings that began in 2010 that at the time were looking like they were about to usher in a brand new era for politics in the region. And to many, it did, but not in the way they thought it would. But as big and important as the Arab Spring was, why are we bringing up this 13-year-old event now? Well, the reason we bring this up is that a lot of the same red flags are starting to appear again. In just the last year, we've seen growing anti-government protests in Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Libya, Morocco, Oman, Sudan, Israel, Turkey, Syria, Tunisia, Palestine, and Iran, just to name a few in this region. Which, again, caught our eye, but doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be another Arab Spring. So we started looking into it a bit deeper, seeing if there was a trend there. Well, that's the thing. The more we looked into it, the more we started worrying as what we found is that the various political and economic factors which precipitated the first wave of the revolution are seemingly appearing all over again. In fact, in almost all these cases, they're actually even worse than before. Just to demonstrate what we're talking about here, if we take a look at the country where all of this kicked off, Tunisia, one of the major factors that began that revolution was youth unemployment. And whilst youth unemployment sat at a staggering 29.3% on the eve of these uprisings, Today, youth unemployment in the country sits at 37.3%, far exceeding the level that began the last uprisings. And these problems are not just limited to Tunisia either. In fact, for the very first time, the Middle East has just been surpassed by Latin America in terms of the percentage of people classified as poor by the World Bank. So if we are crossing those lines, what is actually preventing another full-scale reoccurrence of the Arab Spring? If water boils at 100 degrees, then why is our cup just simmering at 150 degrees? Well, here's the thing. Whilst those metrics were all changing, so is the government's preparedness to combat them. Some of these autocratic states have spent the last decade preparing for another Arab Spring. But after a decade of preparation for these movements, have they done enough to secure their regime? What tools would they have available to them for the next uprisings? Which states in the region are viewed as most vulnerable to these sort of events? And how do these new weapons, not available in 2010, possibly spell the end of political popular uprisings all across the globe? Those are some of the underlying questions we're going to be unpacking here today. Figuring out how we got here, whether we are headed for another revolution, and what tools will stand in the way of that happening. And to help us understand the underlying factors of how we got here, and what drove these revolutions in the first place, as well as the progresses that have and haven't been made here in the region, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Armed and Dangerous. These were a series of 
popular uprisings that came in response to societal grievances against corrupt and underperforming governments, the most prominent of which was Egypt, that had what seemed to be at the time a remarkable success. David Schenker is the Taub Senior Fellow and Director of the Linda and Tony Rubin Program of Arab Politics at the Washington Institute. Before that, he was the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs and was the Principal Middle East Advisor to the Secretary of State for the United States, as well as the senior official overseeing the conduct of U.S. policy and diplomacy in the region stretching from Morocco to Iran and Yemen, with the responsibility of 18 countries, as well as the Palestinian Authority and Western Sahara. On top of these roles, he's also the author of books and papers such as Beyond Islamists and Autocrats, Prospect for Political Reform Post-Arab Spring. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. You had uh, demographic and environmental factors that really spurred the revolution in all sorts of uh, popular uprisings throughout the region. Uh, some of them succeeded in toppling their governments. But in the long term, I think we have very little to show in a positive sense that, that has come out of it. You don't have better governance. You don't have democracy. You don't have improved economies. In some countries, you still have civil war or the remnants of civil wars. Progress has been reversed in terms of governance in places like Tunisia. It's hard to, to speak positively about, about the ultimate outcomes of the Arab Spring. And this is one of the key disappointments about the Arab Spring that many people now realize looking back over a decade on. But before we get into all that, let's take a step back and bring everyone up to speed about what actually happened during the Arab Spring and how we arrived at this situation. Now, the Arab Spring, as it's collectively understood, was a series of uprisings throughout the Middle East at the end of 2010 and going into 2011, with this movement beginning in Tunisia after a frustrated fruit seller would set himself alight in protest of the long-term ineffective government in Tunis. These protests would then be megaphoned by social media and would spread throughout the region, who at the time were all experiencing some pretty severe economic problems. Now, we'll go into most of these cases throughout the episode, but in short, Tunisia would remove their leader, Ben Ali, watching problems emerge in their economy later on. Libya would remove their leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and we would watch the country devolve into a civil war that rages to this day. With that situation also being the case in Yemen and Syria, who again are still in civil war from the Arab Spring. Bahrain would see large-scale protests, but these would be crushed by intervention from the Saudis. Now, the movement was bigger than that when we did see smaller-scale protests in Morocco, Iraq, Algeria, Lebanon, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman, Sudan, Djibouti, Mauritania, Palestine, and Saudi Arabia. But none of these had the same toppling effect that the main six did. The big one everyone remembers, though, is obviously Egypt, with the famous protests in Tahir Square and the overthrowing of the long-term Egyptian government. So can you take us through that one and why Egypt was so important to this movement? We had called these things the Black Swan. I remember it was like 2010. I was traveling uh, domestically in the United States. I had come back from Egypt and I saw on an airplane, I saw Bill Burns, who was at the time the Assistant Secretary for Near East Affairs at the State Department in charge of the Middle East and U.S. government. And he's now the head of the CIA. And I said to, to Bill Burns, hey, Bill, have you, have you been in Egypt lately? This place is a tinderbox. When I was there, I got into a cab, the proverbial cab driver told me in Arabic, he said, it's government and so ineffectual and so corrupt. If I had my way, I'd put them up against a wall and kill them all. And I was shocked. I'd been a frequent traveler and a resident in Egypt for a couple of years. And Bill Burns said to me, nah, I, I haven't been there in a couple of years. I really got to get back. I don't think there was an imagination 
for this happening. People have been saying for years that if you go to places like Pomed, one of the great Middle East scholars in town at the time, Michelle Dunn, was saying, hey, this place is a, a tinderbox, it's so oppressive, et cetera. And yet Mubarak was there for, what, 30 years? It's, it was hard to imagine Tunisia, Egypt, Syria, Libya, that there could be such a, a profound and surprising turn of events that this thing would actually blow. But I think people who were frequent visitors of the country and the people in the embassy were seeing this sort of level of frustration that they were getting around. At the time, in Egypt, one of the generals who led what was called the SCAF, or the Supreme Commanders of the Armed Forces that ran the country, one of them said at the time, well, we've got to be careful here because the next time there's going to be a revolution of the hungry. And certainly the conditions are such in places like Egypt where already the vast majority of the population makes less than $3 a day. But now you have, you know, currency devaluation by 60, 70%. You have, you know, no more foreign currency where even the middle class is being really hurt. That economics can spur this type of, of popular foment. And all throughout the region, many of these countries have uh, very high levels of unemployment. The youth, to the extent that they can, are trying to leave their countries for Europe for more economic opportunity. There's just no future and a lot of frustration and despair. The prospects for living a good life and improving your own position in these countries. These protests saw the end of the rule for Hosni Mubarak, who had been fairly friendly with the US and had ruled Egypt from 1981 up until these protests in 2011. Now, Mubarak would be swept out of power by these movements, and the Muslim Brotherhood would fill that political vacuum. An Islamist party that puts much more emphasis on religion's role within government. However, their time in leadership would be quite short, as followed by a collapsing Egyptian economy, the Muslim Brotherhood would be swept out of power in just 2013, to which one of the generals who led that coup, General Abdul Fattah el-Sisi, would take the presidency in 2014 and remain in that role until today. Again, we have an entire episode on Egypt you can check out for all of this in more detail. Now, I know hindsight makes the best generals, and it's much harder to make decisions when you're there in the moment. But with Egypt now arguably worse off economically, with freedom of expression and social mobility, with over 60,000 people being estimated to have been arrested for political views under Sisi's regime as compared to the five to 10,000 in the last years of Mubarak's tenure, there are some out there who would argue that Egypt is actually worse off now than where it was at the end of Mubarak's regime. Again, we're not here to defend Mubarak at all. We could do an entire episode based on the crimes of that regime. But if you had been in the White House during the early days of 2011, what would you have advised the Obama administration to do during that period? Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, President Obama really got beat up for abandoning Mubarak, but I, I don't really see that he had another option, particularly in the aftermath of 2003. We saw that the United States has, I think, rather limited ability to impact domestic politics in countries that are 6,000 miles away. 
after Iraq, after the, the Arab Spring, we saw what the limits are of the United States to impact the trajectory. We spent a lot of money over the years doing through USAID, funding civil society groups. And while this has been, I think, helpful, no amount of money could have gone out and created, you know, sort of Western style political parties or entities that were capable of shaping the ground during the Arab Spring. So I don't know what we actually should have done. I mean, we supported a set of principles and good governance, anti-corruption, whether we could have done more on that front, maybe it would have been um, helpful. I, I'm not sure it would have been. And uh, we weren't in a position to remove the remnants of these militaries or militant groups in these former regimes to clear the way for a new system of governance in these countries. So I don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot we could have done to made, to make these revolts work, sadly. So what would you say to the people who put the accusation out there that the US were the one fermenting these movements in the Middle East, hoping to remove a lot of these long-term regimes in the region? No, these things were spontaneous. They fed off of one another. We saw sort of a, a chain of dominoes, people being encouraged by what was happening in neighboring countries and choosing to go out in the streets at times with great personal risk to try and, and change systems that clearly weren't working. The United States did not fund these. And once again, we abandoned Mubarak, who was a you know, longtime U.S. partner and got beaten up by, by many Arab countries for doing so, saying, how could you do this? What are you going to do when it comes to our country? You're going to abandon us as well. In fact, these things were the result of many years of this terrible governance. And while we made statements, I don't think that we had in any role in encouraging or, or directing these things. Now, whilst these of these countries were all completely different and no two movements would be exactly the same, the results from many of these Arab Spring uprisings would actually end up being the same. The rise of Islamist parties, parties like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or the Anada Party in Tunisia. Now, whilst an Islamic party rising up in a country like Tunisia, where approximately 99% of the country follows the Sunni Muslim faith, doesn't sound like anything special, when Tunisians are actually polled about their preference around politics, we find that only 27% of the country actually wants religion to be the primary issue within politics, with most voters placing their priority on issues that would probably be better associated with more secularist parties. Yet, much like Iran after their revolution in 1979, we ended up both in Tunisia and Egypt with highly religious governments filling that power vacuum. Even though with Iran's case in particular, the Ayatollahs actually had very low political support right across the country. So how do these movements actually come into power during these vacuum events? Is it because they come to the table with the best policies for voters, or do you think it may be more likely caused by the reality that in a sudden political power vacuum, with no robust existing political parties or infrastructures ready to go, that in those early days, it's much harder for leftists or conservatives or nationalists or technocrats to be able to mobilize and gather support around them and build a movement in order to challenge the status quo politically than it would be for an Islamic movement to do so. As an Islamic movement would likely have built-in followings in the mosques and would be able to mobilize people who do view religion as the primary issue within politics. That quite often these existing power structures within churches and mosques, as well as other religious movements, already have built-in power structures and alliances, as well as sources of broad funding that they can use to effectively 
build, mount, and carry out a much more rapid political campaign. That directly after the Islamic Revolution in 1979, or the Arab Spring uprisings in 2011, the Islamic movements were really the only ones that would be ready to horse trade on day one, unlike all the other parties who would have to spend time building their movements, even though many of those parties' policies would probably be more politically popular than what those Islamic movements are bringing to the table. Do you think the reason that we do see Islamic parties popping up so much after things like the Arab Spring is more due to their ability to fill power vacuums than their ability to govern or build broad coalitions right across the country? Yeah, I think that's a, a good explanation. The vacuums and no systems in place. And in many of these countries, aside from the Islamists, there's no real political parties. So the, the only groups that had mechanisms of, of mobilization were, to start off with, the Islamists. And so these groups very quickly filled a, a vacuum and had their, their own agendas. And then you had others who were able to get into positions, either who were businessmen or, or populists that didn't necessarily have well thought out political platforms or visions for their countries and weren't necessarily altruist, clean politicians either. It was fascinating that Tunisia, you know, they were the success story of the, the Arab Spring. You got a government, you got a, a democratic system that emerged. The, the Islamists controlled the government. The parliament weren't doing well, and there were large protests, and there was a peaceful transition of, of power. But as bad as or as ineffective as the government was, the Islamists were even less effectual and more dysfunctional. And the economy has just gone into a, a tailspin. To which point you get Kais Saeed, a former Tunisian law professor, who steps up and is elected president in 2019 winning over 70% of the vote across the country. So can you take us through how Saeed came to power here? You have a president who basically came to power and said, I alone can fix this. And what I need is more power, changes in the constitution and in the system of governance to give me more power so I can fix this. And it's incredibly repressive. They've rolled back every single democratic piece of progress that they achieved over the years. But there is popular support for this because things are so bad and nothing else has been able to reverse this, the trajectory of this country. And so many people say, well, we got to give this guy a chance because parliament is just dysfunctional and terrible. And we're not going to get out of this situation. To which Saeed did manage to ram through his constitutional changes, even the parts targeting mosques with 94% of voters voting yes and Saeed at the time enjoying an approval rating of over 87%. So it is somewhat hard to say that he wasn't acting with the will of the people. So if we look at Egypt, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and Tunisia, all of these guys who went through the Arab Spring and overthrew their dictatorships are, unfortunately, economically, far worse off than where they started, right across a wide range of metrics. Whereas Bahrain, the sixth country of the Arab Spring, who, with the help of the Saudis, crushed their protest movement, on most economic metrics are actually far better off than where they were back in 2011, as depressing as it is to think about. Do you think these kinds of metrics and these lack of good results that we've seen from the Arab Spring previously may deter some of these populations from attempting something similar again in the future? Certainly in places like Tunisia, one of the factors that is keeping it from happening again is that people saw that it just went nowhere and the conditions were actually worse after these revolutions occurred. Uh, they're just tired. In a place like Egypt, people ended up with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
that proved as inept and, and, and corrupt and oppressive as, or even more so than the, than the Mubarak regime. So I think people are tired. Understandable, but it still would be foolish to completely run off the possibility of it ever happening again. So what sort of metrics do you think people will be looking for that something similar is about to happen again in this region of the world? There's no recipe here, but I think one of the key indicators is youth unemployment. When a place like Jordan, it's 50% youth unemployment. It's higher among college graduates. This points to a bigger problem in the economy, the inability to create jobs, frustration with government's abilities throughout the region to provide any type of services. And then, of course, the standard of, of living, wh whether people can actually eat, this is a, a key a key indicator. But once again, people generally have a pretty high tolerance for bad governance, for authoritarianism. I hope the U.S. government, a place like net assessment or uh, policy planning at the State Department, would be thinking about these issues. But you know, the U.S. government is generally not so forward-looking. They're dealing with putting out fires every day and don't have a great deal of time to think about the future, but it comes and bites you. Is there a country in this region that most concerns you that you think an uprising similar to the ones we saw back in 2010, 2011 may actually be possible? I am most concerned about a place like Jordan, which has a, a population that is believed to be over 60% uh, Palestinian origin. The, the protests there have been really large. There have been protests organized by the government in Egypt. And I want to speculate about what a Biden administration would do here, but I have a hard time seeing the U.S. get you know, very involved. But at the same time, Jordan is, without a doubt, the best Arab partner of the United States and seen as a force of moderation and stability in the region. And that, of course, shares the longest border uh, Israel. Iran would like nothing more than to topple the government in Jordan and undoubtedly is taking steps to stoke the embers of discontent where it can. So I don't want to speculate on what we do, but it would be a real tragedy that this regime was somehow uh, destabilized. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 2010 was a wake-up call to a lot of governments. Almost no one was ready for how quickly these protests came up, how widespread they would turn out to be, and how readily leaders who'd been in power for 40 years could be thrown out. Those who had survived 2011 wanted to make damn sure they weren't next on the menu. And afterwards, many of these autocrats sought to co-opt, disrupt, 
and manipulate the tools like social media, the internet, and political messaging that have brought down those governments and started those civil wars. But what do they actually do? Which countries were swallowed up in all this? And are we seeing those same tools being used today as a part of other ongoing conflicts? Well, to answer that, we'll turn to our second guest. Part two, a toxic X. I think it's important to remember in 2010 that social media was kind of in a Wild West status. If you think about what Twitter was like in 2010, 2011, or Facebook, these social media platforms were a lot more comparable to almost utilities, like internet utilities at the time. It was a very open and politically neutral kind of space. And that has shifted for the social media companies over the years. Michael Sexton is a senior policy advisor on AI and cyber at Third Way National Security. But before that, he was previously the former director of the Cybersecurity Initiative at the Middle East Institute and served as a senior fellow and associate director of the Qatar America Institute, as well as a senior analyst for the Chertoff Group and as a data manager for the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. Michael has published articles and reports on cyber attacks, cryptography, and their implications for national security, human security, and international norms as well as serving as the managing editor for Charged Affairs. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. The Arab Spring was a sort of trial by fire for how social media would be able to grapple with the implications of its own existence. And then all of a sudden, these companies that previously did not invest a lot of time and effort into content moderation suddenly had enormous bureaucratic departments that are devoted to this stuff governments in the Middle East are far, far more cognizant now of the proximity of the risk of political uprisings, of possibly violent uprisings, and there's a securitization of this problem. That's a very different situation than we had in 2011. So Saudi Arabia in particular has been at the forefront of these online security reforms. Can you take us through what they've done and what it actually looks like in practice? It's not like Saudi Arabia has passed a law that now says that protesting online is illegal. It's just that they have the technology and the organizational wherewithal to be able to meet these challenges where they encounter them. So that is going to be through use of technologies like spyware, like Pegasus, which we have seen suspected use by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Egypt. But the point is they have these technologies that they can use to surveil protests, threats, or dissidents uh, when they come up so they can kind of nip this in the bud. So instead of having a march of thousands of people who are upset about, let's say, the state of government corruption in Saudi Arabia or something. Instead, it becomes a single journalist like Jamal Khashoggi. And the approach now is to see that kind of a person and identify it as a threat and shut it down before it can turn into a political movement that might threaten the authoritarian governments that are observing it. However, Pegasus, the Israeli spyware program, isn't the only tool that these governments have at their sleeve. Many of these governments, particularly in places like Egypt or Saudi Arabia, have the ability to shut off the internet during protests, which for an autocratic government has two major functions. For one, they know that most people will require internet to be able to organize group protests and marches against that government, 
and by cutting it off, it makes it very difficult to organize these protests or for activists to communicate between one another. And two, it stops information about what's going on on the ground from getting out to the general public and outside audiences who may be pushed to intervene. As an example, in a place like Sudan or Gorobarakshan region in Tajikistan, the government can shut off the internet, making it very difficult for journalists to get footage of these atrocities out to the wider world. And sadly, without footage, news agencies are very unlikely to pick up that story. More proactive governments can also get ahead on this issue as well by simultaneously stopping real information getting out of the pocket whilst posting their own information online supposedly from that region, with these alternative videos indicating that everything in the region is perfectly fine. These tactics around shutting off the internet, are they commonly used by governments in this region of the world? Yeah, we've seen this in Iran in particular a lot. It's very common in a situation where you see a, a major protest to just shut down the internet there to just thwart the ability of the protesters to organize. And being social media as well, can these governments use things like geolocation to target even just specific suburbs or sectors of the country, cracking down on local protests whilst most of the country may even be completely unaware? As far as things like geolocation, you're talking about things that require the kind of consent and cooperation of the telecommunications companies. You know, we have AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile here. Whatever those are in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Tunisia, those telecommunications providers are going to be the ones that are protecting their customers' data, that are making sure that it is stored safely that are making sure that if someone searches for it, they have a warrant and who are making sure that if the government is asking for, you know, where is this user's geolocation for the next three days, that is a legitimate warrant. Unfortunately, that is something that we can kind of expect in the United States for these telecommunications companies to operate with those scruples. But that is not going to be expected in authoritarian countries where it's just impossible to be a cell phone uh, service provider without being complicit in the politics of the government. So when you have the complicity of those companies, it's really hard to have a sense of exactly what the government has access to. So in your opinion, is this why a lot of countries, including someone like Saudi Arabia, have put large efforts into keeping control of their major telecom companies? with Saudi Arabia as an example, having complete control over the state telecom company, the Saudi telecom company. And if we expand this out a little further, do you think this gives us an insight into why someone like China would be willing to offer Huawei infrastructure across a whole load of countries? Or why the US is so willing to build telecoms throughout hotspots in Africa? Or why Australia is willing to build telecom infrastructure right across the Pacific Islands? You know, if you're looking at maintaining order in a country, how important is the control of a country's telecom infrastructure and industry? It's one of the most sensitive industries, if not the most sensitive industry. I think that's because the people that are making these choices are aware of how sensitive they are. And governments seem aware of the impact these kind of things can have, with the Biden administration even granting exemption to sanctions for several US VPN companies, allowing these companies to operate within Iran during protests in the country, in hopes of getting more of the information from on the ground in Iran out to the wider public. So can you take us through how important some of these actions by state governments are and how they can choose to get very involved in what sort of internet, telecoms and VPNs across adversarial countries? Tor, I think, is an interesting example. Tor 
is an anonymous browser that's mostly used for things like accessing the dark web, online drug marketplaces, those sorts of things. But it is an anonymous browser that makes it practically impossible to surveil what the specific person using it is looking at. And this was developed by the United States Naval Research Laboratory, developed the Tor Onion Router. So this kind of a platform is useful for a variety of reasons. It could be that you are a CIA officer in Lebanon and somehow you get lost and you need to use a public computer or you need to use a Wi-Fi network that isn't trusted. And so you need a free browser that you know is secure so you can poke at your employer, the CIA, to get back in touch. It's useful for that purpose. It's also useful if you're a dissident in that country and you want to be able to communicate with other dissidents without being surveilled. Tor is available for free for practically anyone who is able to get a link to install it. And it is absolutely useful to be able to get around sensors in countries like Iran or Iraq or Saudi Arabia. I would sort of speculate that the reason why the United States and, and companies in the United States are probably more aggressive in trying to support the adoption of this kind of technology in a country like Iran than a country like Saudi Arabia's pretty obviously that Saudi Arabia is a close U.S. partner and ally. It would be pretty difficult to be able to cooperate strategically with Saudi Arabia, which I consider to kind of be just a necessary prerogative of U.S. foreign policy if you were simultaneously trying to give Saudi citizens the tools <laughs> to destabilize their government. It's a very tricky needle to thread in a country like that to be able to support people's right to speak out and improve their government without delegitimizing the government itself. So the states are in the telecoms, they're in the browsers, but what about the websites? The Armspring was almost entirely driven by Twitter. And at that time when Twitter was still relatively small and mostly funded by a few VC capital firms, there was very little that these Arab governments could do apart from ask politely to get Twitter to suppress political hashtags or refuse access to certain locations. So once the dust from the Arab Spring had settled, many of these states realized they need to have a better in with these websites, particularly as social media use was exploding at the time, with usage across the region jumping from what was 25% during the Arab Spring to now sitting at somewhere just below 76%. Now, having seen the threat that was Twitter, Saudi Prince Awalid bin Talal, along with the Saudi Kingdom's holding company, poured $1.89 billion into Twitter in order to become effectively the largest shareholders of the company, which being such large shareholders did come with some privileges, including some geolocational URL filtering and suppression of unfriendly tags. And there was accusations that certain employees would pass on some details or particular accounts. However, the website did still ask to a board and had some transparency about who they dealt with. So fast forward a few years later, and Elon Musk strolls onto the scene to buy Twitter and turn it into X. Now, whilst people point out that Elon doesn't sell shares, he did receive a large chunk of the money he needed for the sale from governments within this region. For instance, the Saudi PIF bought 5% of Tesla to try and keep the stock price up during the period of sale, which very much helped Elon get it across the line. Al-Wali bin Talal also rolled over his $1.9 billion to again be the second largest shareholder within the company. The Qatar Investment Authority also gave him 365 million, and the Dubai-based VY Capital gave him 700 million. These all being just some of the deals that we can legally talk about here. 
Now, Musk won't release many details about the structures of these agreements and what he has promised to give them, but from the estimates and great work other journalists have brought forward is that Musk ceded somewhere between 20 to 40% of the company to these Gulf state monarchies. And although these businesses have lost money for the Gulf states, Musk's acquisition here has given them access to data and info and dissonance both at home and abroad, not seen under previous management, far more suppression of reach for certain movements, hashtags and locations, and an explosion in bot programs brought about by the relaxing of certain restrictions within the website's architecture. What do you think the motivation behind these companies pouring so much money into Twitter is? And then why would these companies choose to back Musk's privatization of the company? What has happened is these companies, like I said, started as a kind of Wild West location. They were not so much institutions as they were really just public squares without much content moderation. Now they really are institutions. It, you know, if you are Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, part of your business objective is to be able to get more users around the world. Facebook has already saturated the United States and Europe, and so it wants to be able to secure India, for example. But Facebook is not going to be able to operate in India unless it is complying with India's data localization policies, uh, which are largely things that are out of step with, you know, American values of privacy and concepts of <clears throat> reasonable search and seizure. These things, unfortunately, get superseded when the question is simply, are we going to ban Twitter or Facebook or whatever in India or not? When the question is that, there's not much of a choice for the platforms but to comply. So if you are a small Gulf state like the Emirates or Qatar, you have an enormous amount of money. That is your really plentiful resource. You don't have a ton of political clout. You don't have a ton of natural sympathy in the EU and the United States. And so what do you do with this money? It's not you're not going to invest it like a normal investor because power and influence are also a form of currency in the international political stage. So if you want to perpetuate your country and perpetuate your investments, you're going to need a stakehold in some of these really influential institutions that include the largest social media platforms. But it's not even just the social media platforms. I mean, it's large international technology like AI, and 5G, all of these different ways for governments to be able to push their soft power, to turn their money into soft power, so that way they can remain in power and continue justifying the existence of the government as it is. One of the incredibly popular products for governments like this are the purchase of AI-enhanced bot armies. With this industry being largely dominated by Israeli firms, but also including Russian, American, Chinese, and a few other firms to a lesser extent. These firms can give states access to thousands or even millions of very real-looking profiles who will be able to boost hashtags or talking points with just the push of a few buttons, enabling governments to be able to flood millions of global comment sections, either pushing a particular political candidate or encouraging tourism in their country, or simply defending an indefensible event they've just carried out. So can you give us some examples of these and take us through what role these bot armies might play in modern day events? The war in Yemen is a very good example of this, because if I am an observer and I'm trying to figure out what's going on in Yemen or any war, I'm going to log on to Twitter and I'm going to see what people are saying. 
people who describe themselves as experts. And there's such an enormous amount of information on there that it is overwhelming for people. It's just impossible for anyone to systematically look at all of the sources and then parse it down to what is truly, truly legit in something like the war in Yemen. And so what people will see is they'll see a lot of bots that are pretending to be real people, basically just promoting one single narrative completely uncritically. There was a company in Israel called Team Jorge that specifically does this, that it, it, you know, it gives countries a dashboard where they can set up fake profiles to push an election in favor of one candidate or something else. It's a super shady market. And I really hope that the same way that the uh, Biden administration has exerted pressure on the Israeli government to crack down on its really unscrupulous sales of spyware to authoritarian governments, I hope that it does push them to also recognize this kind of an industry is just deeply unethical and completely contrary to the entire spirit of Israel being a democratic state. It's just that's just not tenable if you privatize and let people profit off of an industry that is this mercenary and this completely morally bankrupt. Whether it's an election or the Israel-Hamas war or the Yemen war or the war in Ukraine, you're going to see disinformation play a unique role and they're going to see AI play a unique role. It's much easier to just automate Twitter bots with BS that you could very easily just spit out with a large language model like ChatGPT or any of its competitors to just spit out a bunch of pro-Saudi or pro-Houthi or pro-Turkish or whatever perspective you want, pro-Erdogan, anti-Muslim brotherhood. It's very, very easy to just produce this information at scale and just swamp it all over social media. And AI enables it to get a step further Whereas before it was like so patently and stupidly obvious, it was literally just like tweets that were copy and pasted from each other and accounts that were just obviously, obviously fake. That's, you know, their URLs are just numbers. They have no real pictures. They're going to get better and better and they're going to be able to get set up faster. So, you know, exactly what does that look like in the context of each case study is going to be different. So with all these new technologies and advancements and options open to these autocrats, do you think it is much easier today to be able to crack down, break up or prevent from even happening any movement that would resemble something similar to the Arab Spring back in 2011? For authoritarian governments that were watching what was unfolding on Twitter, these governments were blindsided. They're no longer blindsided. They're aware of the problem and they have the technologies to surveil their citizens and be able to keep track of that. You know, you see much more often people going to jail, getting arrested, getting interrogated or intimidated simply because of tweets, because governments recognize that they want to nip this in the bud before it becomes a big issue. And the best way to do that is to deter people from expressing their dissent online. So that is, I think, where you see the real departure in terms of what the problem was like in 2011. Beforehand, it was really almost underground from the perspective of authoritarian Arab governments. But now they absolutely have the sunlight to be able to look at it and to be able to spot these 
problems in their view and intercept and stop them before they can in any way threaten the stability of the government. Ever wondered what it's like to be in the room with top Al-Qaeda terrorists plotting their next move? Do you want to know how the history of Islamic fundamentalist thought informs the way the world works today? Well then, dear listener, Conflicted is the podcast for you. I trace the epic battles between Muslims and the West. What are the Houthis' objectives in the Red Sea? It's a lesson to the rest of the Muslim world and the Arab world. Do not trust the Islamists. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, an author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. And now Conflicted Season 5 is being cooked up, coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community to give you bonus episodes and access to our community hub on Discord. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts. So a big chunk of the population is simply disillusioned with the idea of revolution. They tried it, and for a lot of people, things actually got worse. And for the chunk that does remain, those who still have the faith in people power, well, they can now be surveilled to the nth degree, picked off and arrested one by one, whilst increasingly seeing their movements being suppressed online. But what else can these states do to prevent these uprisings? How is it that most of these countries blew right past the economic metrics that caused the previous Arab Spring, and yet, the government still stay in power. Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3. Development or Democracy I see the Arab Spring as sort of disastrous in retrospect. I think there was still this lingering thought after the wave of democratization that we tried to force upon the Middle East with the war in Iraq and to a certain extent the war in Libya thereafter. This idea that we could by force trigger change in the Middle East and that democratization was sort of a predetermined path that, that these countries should and would follow. And if Iraq did not disabuse us of those thoughts, nor Libya, I think Syria certainly did. But by the time the Arab Spring resulted in change in Tunisia and in Egypt and the public protests with Gezi Park and so forth and Turkey, I, I think the idea had shifted in the West from democratization via external intervention to change in democratization through these homegrown, but maybe externally encouraged movements, but they all ended disastrously. Rich Allenson is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and the Jamestown Foundation. Rich served in the US Department of State as both a military and civilian advisor, working in the policy planning office and later in the office of the Special Representative of Syria. From 2013 to 2016, he was a member of the National Defense University, and Institute for the National Security Studies faculty. He served as the U.S. Defense Attaché in Kabul between 2014 and 2015, and previously served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Training and Development for the U.S. Security Coordinator in Jerusalem, and during his time has helped shape interagency discussion and national policy options for transitions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority. He spent over a decade serving in the U.S. military and diplomatic missions overseas, including combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, with his military service also including tours within the office of the Secretary of Defense. But more importantly on top of that, he's also a great friend of the show and we're thrilled to have him back on today. Even in Tunisia, of course, we've seen regression of the one spot that was generally held up as a success of the Arab Spring. Egypt, of course, went from the, the Morsi moment, which was brought about by popular 
acclaim and movement to failure of that society uh, and general dissatisfaction with economic terms, with security, with the entire path of the Morsi revolution, and of course, then with the advent of the Sisi regime. And I think, of course, the poster child for all of this is Syria and what happened there with external encouragement and exhortation to go ahead and overthrow your dictator and then a bunch of people standing on the sidelines saying, well, maybe we should help or let's help a little, let's send some weapons and so forth. But the final toll of that being at least half a million dead, uh, primarily at the hands of the regime with its Russian and Iranian sponsors, and six million refugees regionally uh, and into Europe, four million of them or so in Turkey, and a political gaping wound that still continues to this day in Syria in terms of a country that doesn't exercise control over its entire territory. So if you go case by case, it is hard to find a single country where we can say the Arab Spring resulted in a better standard of living for people, for more security or for democratization in any significant way. Now, when I see this topic brought up online, I do see a lot of people forgetting that these weren't the only government overthrows taking place around this period of time, with many of the color revolutions actually delivering some fairly good results for their populations. Revolutions like Georgia in 2003, Kyrgyzstan in 2005, and Ukraine in 2014 actually did improve living standards for much of the country. So why was this model successful in Georgia, but not successful in Tunisia? Well, democracy is not a one-size-fits-all garment. And I think that one of the lessons that's been learned by military people, especially American military people of my generation, is that as you go to these different places, that you know, Maslow's hierarchy definitely applies with term, in terms of democratization. We used to ask the question in Iraq, is Iraq Iraq because of Saddam? In which case you remove Saddam and democracy ensues. Or is Saddam Saddam because of Iraq, in, in which case you can remove Saddam, but Iraq is the root cause. And, and by that, I mean that there is a political culture, a demographic structure, and a geographic positioning that all militate against stability. Stability is a building block for prosperity, and prosperity is a building block for democracy. And I think we tried in several of these places, again, Afghanistan and Iraq by force, and then later uh, through the Arab Spring by encouraging it on its own, to kind of skip steps and to think that the problem really was essentially political at root. And if you just change the political leadership, uh, then all of a sudden uh, these other things will sort of take care of themselves. And, and that didn't happen. So if you look at a Georgia, if you look at a Ukraine, even Kyrgyzstan, some of the social pathologies and political pathologies were less deeply rooted. Georgia, of course, is a place that has its own divisions, uh, but it's also been close enough to the European core but in the Middle Eastern countries, you're talking about poor and politically very fragmented, and in some cases, socially polarized places. It's really hard to build a democracy on that. Now, you opened up the discussion here talking about where you thought the Arab Spring fell short, and I can definitely see the logic there. But if you look at the one of the major six protest movements that kicked off, the only one that didn't overthrow its government, the one in Bahrain, you can see that same logic that, frankly, them not overthrowing their government has been a somewhat economically wise decision in the long run. So if something like an Arab Spring were to happen again, do you think states would be willing to roll out the same solution that Saudi Arabia did in Bahrain and help crush some of these small movements in their very early stages? Or is Bahrain more of a fringe case in this scenario? So for, for every example of a successful intervention, you've got an example of an unsuccessful intervention. And I think a lot of that has to do with factors like proximity and size of the country or the re regime you're trying to protect. If Bahrain was 10 times its size, given the demographics and the social fragility in Bahrain, I'm not sure that the Saudi intervention would have worked. That said, clearly there is a view among these countries that they should, and this is not unique to think about uh, Kazakhstan and uh, Russia a short what, year and a half ago, there is this 
growing willingness of regional countries to intervene to save their friends and to oppose their enemies. Syria, of course, was an example of that. So too was Bahrain. I, I do think it's more difficult in other countries, but the taboo or the sort of the normative rules against intervening in your neighbor's countries have absolutely collapsed since the advent of the Arab Spring. So I think there will be an attempt if there's a serious uprising against any of the regional regimes by somebody, whether it's from the Iranian bloc and whom they support, or the Sunni Arab states. Qatar is an interesting case in this discussion as well, because you go back a couple of years to what, 2016, 2017, and the rest of the GCC essentially decided for regime change, or at least a neutering of the regime in Doha. But there was intervention. The United States sort of counseled against it but and poo-pooed the whole thing. But the Turks sent troops and, and still have roughly a brigade now stationed in Qatar on a permanent basis to make sure there was no regime change at a time when the rest of the GCC had essentially blockaded, embargoed, and cut off the government over their policy. So those barriers, cognitive and normative barriers to intervention have absolutely dropped. And that, as you might infer, I think militates against a successful revolution from below. So if you were the president of the United States at that period of time, what would you have done differently? Crucial context here for Obama, because Obama had already lived through the failure of our Iraq policy. So we were constrained on day one from the fact that Washington had gone through this experience of having a war that was, people forget, but the Iraq war in 2003 had great bipartisan support in Congress. Even though the case for it was pretty shaky, as some people pointed out, and there were dissenters, this was not that controversial in Washington. And there was a, sort of a moment that everybody jumped in on. And after watching how horribly things went awry, both with regards to U.S. losses and the, the chaos in Iraq, the damage to the Iraqi people and polity, and then you know the, the sharp rise of Iranian influence. And it was just clear that nothing went the way that we said it should have. So I think Obama, in a sense, had a very difficult decision to make. One of the things I would have done if I was Obama is I would not have pressed for radical, rapid change. So for instance, in Egypt, we wanted democratization, but we had essentially had this long relationship with Mubarak that was mutually supportive. And yes, we were pressing for change and it was happening very slowly. And we had sort of an agreement on the Suez Canal and on military exercises and on incremental reform. But the idea was always that Mubarak was our guy and we were going to stick with him. I think the point at which uh, President Obama started to call for change or indicate that the United States was no longer vested in Mubarak, that's maybe the only decision point that he had. You know, we, he was not going to commit massive U.S. resources either to support Mubarak or, or Mubarak or to oppose him. But rhetorically, once he made the statement that these people, good or bad, they had been our allies for decades and decades in the Cold War and the post-Cold War, that they were fair game and that maybe the time has come for them to go. Not just about people like Assad, but about people like Mubarak. I think that was probably... Um, in retrospect, a strategic error. And I'm not defending Mubarak per se. It was um, a very repressive regime in its way. But what I would say is that when you have a strategically friendly actor, it's easier to have some leverage, have some traction, and get them to reform through a combination of carrots and sticks. By the way, Libya is sort of another example of this. We did coerce Gaddafi's Libya quite effectively, and we, we got them to do two things to stop supporting terror movements regionally and accept that they that they had, and to end their pursuit of chemical weapons and, and formally renounce WMD. We essentially got what we wanted from Qaddafi. And Qaddafi at that point, in exchange for being relatively unmolested in retaining his seat of power, probably was open to both carrots and sticks. As a matter of fact, I understand from American diplomats that worked that case, uh, was 
very open to reforms. They wouldn't have been fast. This would not have been a rapid or revolutionary change. But I think what happened is the Obama administration got overly anxious and sort of the pacing became an issue. Instead of waiting for incremental change over years, I think they felt in a strangely analogous way to how Bush felt impatient and said, we need to change in Iraq and elsewhere by force. I think they felt like we needed to withdraw all support, even from friendly regimes or, or antagonistic regimes that had sort of given in to us. And that's it. We needed to do this all at once. And, and, and frankly, abandoning an incremental path, losing patience and rhetorically, you know, pushing for everything all at once, everywhere now, I think that that led to chaos. So I, I'm not sure that once day one, once the Arab Spring breaks out, you have control of that. I don't know that there's an incremental decision you could have made in Libya or Egypt that, that would have prevented the problems that followed. Well, in that case, what do you think Biden would do if there were a similar uprising today on his watch? Well, I, I think certainly in the case of the Biden administration, what we see at the end is that pragmatism trumps principle. And I think that's probably wisdom in this case. I, the idea that democratic indicators, as perceived in the West, should be primary, I think has proven not to be a formula for success. Because if you push first with values and only secondarily with economic aid and development aid and security aid, uh, then what you're going to get is a, a violent and sort of chaotic situation that is mouthing the right platitudes, but ultimately worsening the lives of the people involved. And we lived through that in Afghanistan. Look, Afghanistan moved way up on the human development index. Uh, they had 24-hour electricity for the first time ever in Kabul. They had education of girls and women uh, going through the route. They had many great indicators, and yet the security investments were insufficient to keep the Taliban from doing car bombs and assassinations across the country. So you know, I think the Biden administration has become more pragmatic. They still push for these statements of values and for the democratic indicators, but they're making deals with less than democratic regimes and they're trying to focus on sta stabilization in these different places rather than change. So you talked a bit there about metrics and obviously all these sort of things are very, very hard to actually measure. But if you were trying to figure out where the next uprising in this region might come from, what metrics or indicators would you be looking at most closely? The Middle East is an interesting place when it comes to metrics, right? So we, you can measure a lot of things. When we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had all sorts of metrics for progress that we thought would augur for stability. And yet it didn't really make a dent in terms of making the governments that we had supported in those areas more legitimate than their competitors, certainly not with the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan as opposed to the Taliban. So I have to admit in answering the question that I have some skepticism about the value of statistics as indicators or barometers of revolution and war, because it's hard to, to gauge the zeitgeist. It's hard to gauge that the human will for conflict and violence. And again, I, I just don't think that there's a lot of great statistics out there measuring things like discontent among the public. And at what point do they say enough is enough? Most of the countries where we are interested in that don't allow public polling in any extensive or accurate way. So GDP and per capita GDP, economic growth, inflation, employment, these are all useful indicators of where there's trouble. But in terms of where a crisis is going to blossom into, into violence and then potentially into revolutionary political change or civil war, I think for that you can't rely on statistics. I think the indicators there have to be more on what we would say qualitative methods and essentially talking to people. So the United States and its allies need to have diplomatic contact with these countries, even the repressive regimes. And we need to have intelligence agents and on the ground, we have to have friends in the opposition. We have to read their newspapers. We have to talk to their people. And I think in the net picture, if you've got thousands of contact points among a, a spread 
of political groups, not just anti-regime groups, but those that are even supporting some of these regimes as well. And again, that goes for antagonistic as well as friendly regimes. Then you start to get a net assessment. But this is, in you know military terms, this would be considered human intelligence rather than statistical analysis or signals intelligence or imagery or whatever. The, you, you can only know the human heart and its willingness to incur the risk involved with this sort of thing through extensive talking. Well, with that said, and knowing your particular experience in this region, is there a country out there that you're really worried about that might end up soon heading for a similar fate as 2011? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I will tell you the one that worries me most is Jordan. And that's because of its sensitive location, its unique demography. I have some worries about how the current, and you know, I, I've worked with Israelis and Palestinians both. I, um, I'm very disturbed by the course of, of what's going on in Gaza, both you know, because Hamas was allowed to develop the capabilities to do what it did on October 7th, and then sort of the potential outcomes of the very stern Israeli response to it. So in a country like Jordan, which is a critical U.S. ally, it's been a good partner to Israel, and it is sort of a bastion of moderation and incremental progress in the Middle East, it's got a population that's a majority, some say as high as 70%, Palestinians. So the challenges to legitimacy, while somewhat muted, have been real there, both in terms of you know the Palestinians as opposed to the, quote, East Bankers, and how the different elements of Jordanian nationality are integrated and, and privileged differentially, but also just legitimacy of the Hashemite government. And, and of course, the king is reasonably popular, certainly popular in the West, but there are muted signs of unrest. There have been for decades there. So they have to play this very carefully because a majority of their population is a little skeptical to begin with. And uh, they have some of these classic signs that uh, did not erupt in Jordan during the first Arab Spring, but signs that people are not entirely happy with the political and economic package of rights that they've got right now. That's where I would worry most about a dramatic change, certainly in the Arab world. The others... I think the socio-political models in Saudi is interesting because uh, they've got a, a young crown prince and they are dealing with a lot of economic development and social pressures that led to the Arab Spring. I think Egypt obviously would also be a, a place of concern, but Egypt's one of those places where people are always concerned and yet it always sort of muddles through. You know, the problem there is primarily economic in, in that the Sisi government and the very military-dominated economic system that they've got is still not really engaged in the kind of economic reforms that would be necessary for long-term stability. But I would say Jordan's the number one concern. So whilst concerns around these uprisings are definitely warranted, as we've blown past most of the red flags that existed right before the uprisings in 2011, and a much freer license given by outside powers for these more autocratic states to discipline their populations in the manner they see fit, do you think that it is much easier for an autocrat to be able to break up and crush these anti-government movements today than it was back in, let's say, 2011? Has destroying dissent become much easier for these governments? I think it's easier to crack down. Assad has sort of set the mold for this because there is no butchery from Assad that will be enough to prompt the international community to intervene and remove him. And I think that lesson, having been learned, has broken a taboo. So it's easier for any of these regimes to engage in violent repression without fear of real consequences. There might be some economic sanctions or some condemnation at the United Nations. But I think that knowing now what what has happened in the various places where this occurred the first time around, that with, whether we're talking about Egypt or, or Yemen or Syria, the, the threshold for violence against, against your own people has been dropped. And also the sophistication of repressive apparatus has just gotten better and better in terms of 
types of weapons that can be deployed now, drones and uh, electronic listening devices and so forth. Uh, in the technological race, <laughs> it is funny, in this 2008-2009 era, there was this idea that in an era of social media, that it was impossible for repressive regimes to maintain message control. But I think that what we've seen over the past 10 years is that actually regimes are pretty good at doing this through the use of disinformation, through manipulation of internet networks and so forth, and being able to drop cell networks. And the repressive apparatus has been able to instrumentalize information technology and emerging weapons technology far better than opposition movements had. So it, it's made it a little bit easier. The other thing the Arab Spring revealed, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is the, the socio-political immaturity of these societies. Where we see successful revolutionary political change or significant political change, what has to happen is in each of these places, not only the hierarchy I discussed earlier of security, stability, and prosperity, at least some degree, but you've got to have organization. You've got to have political organizations based on some sort of solidarity within that society, whether it's tribal or whether it's regional or whether it's economic groups that have a modus vivendi that band together to oppose the existing elite because they have no longer have legitimacy or the ability to provide services, etc. But I think we, we've seen in all of these societies, there's just huge gaps in the solidarity among these socioeconomic groups and their ability to function, let alone democratically, just in an organized political fashion. So we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about how democracy comes and about how fragile it is and how easy it is to crush movements that claim to be pursuing it. So I guess after all of that, what is preventing a second Arab Spring? Well, the answer is probably a combination of a few factors. For one, governments are keenly aware that it was social media that was a massive amplifier in the organization of the first Arab Spring. And upon that realization, most of those governments have now since embarked on campaigns of increasingly thorough state-sponsored censorship, upping their reach repression, and further utilizing things like geolocational filtering, all to hide the incisive information from the people who need to see it. But at the end of the day, a revolution only ever actually occurs when the people are pushed just that little bit too far. And the scary bit about that is that we often can't predict where that bit too far is. In my mind though, and having spoken with people who have lived through the situation, the real deterrent in going for a movement like this again seems mostly to be the uncertainty of outcome, that protesters who would put their lives on the line, whether their actions could bring a new wave of peace and prosperity to the region, or whether it could simply undo a decade of work, crash the tourism industry, and in the end, seeing a now increasingly paranoid government holding onto power. And if I was weighing up those options and took a look at the scoreboard, the second option from history seems to be the more likely outcome. Although, to be clear, that doesn't mean it's off the cards or that any of this is impossible. But with these tools becoming increasingly effective and the protesters getting increasingly desperate, it's hard to imagine that we're not heading for at least some sort of impasse. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. We've been figuring out how to put this piece together for a long time now, as it's been one of the issues that's been bouncing around the team for quite a while now. But from seeing all the recent developments in misinformation online that are coming from recent conflicts and the lack of context behind so much of it out there at the moment, we figured we really wanted to tackle the issue. However, that's not the only thing we've been working on to tackle the issue of lack of context, as for years now, we've always wanted to give the best information possible in the most accessible format. And in doing so, we've been tossing up whether to stay with these longer deep dive formats or instead try to break these big topics down to shorter, fully animated videos full of graphics, graphs, and the latest war plans, doing whatever we can to try and bring educated context 
to this sea of crazy misinformation and half-truths that litter the online space. And luckily for us, I think we may have found a way to do that. In the next few days, we'll be launching a brand new sister channel on YouTube called Context Matters, where with the help of a number of other big political and economic YouTube channels, we want to give you this same level of quality and detail, but in an accessible video format. I myself am incredibly excited to finally be able to do the long form Redline program, as well as the shorter documentary form program with Context Matters. So if you want to get your friend into an issue, but don't think he'd sit down for a full hour and a half, this is a great entry point for those issues. And all of which we're launching in just a few days. Look, it's all very exciting. And I look forward to talking about it with you more soon once it's actually been launched. But until then, stay tuned and get ready for even more geopolitical content from us. Now, if you want to be up to date the second that those videos drop, you can find all of the links and info about it on our Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Elliott Oz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help myself and the team keep this program going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this week I'd like to thank Jason, Lorenzo, David Henderson, and Timberwolf, with the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like this, so if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars and want special access to content like our recent workshop unpacking the Taiwan invasion plans, or our upcoming workshop on the military strength and capabilities of the army of Uzbekistan, you can do so by signing up to our Patreon today. And really thank you for doing so. But for now, this episode on the possibility of a second Arab Spring is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Tweets from Tahir by Alex Nunns. It's a book of some of the most influential tweets that started the Arab Spring movement, which does sound weird, but it gives you a great chronological sense of everything as it unfolds, as the book is laid out in chronological order. The second book is The Arab Spring by Mark L. Haas, for a sobering look at the reality of these uprisings. And the third is The Age of Counter-Revolution by Jamie Allenson, looking at where these movements came unstuck and where the region is likely heading at the moment. Next, I want to thank this week's guests, David Schenker, Michael Sexton, and Rich Allenson, an absolutely stellar lineup as always. Next, I want to thank my staff, starting with the primary researchers on this piece, Mason Wise, Isaac Gibson, and Cameron Gale, who always produce top-notch work on these ones. But they're not the only people that help us keep this thing going. So I'd like to thank Cameron Gale, the deputy producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Juvella, Genevieve Dolomay, Ned Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Mr. Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, Ben Nutter, Mason Wise, Gabriel Lane, Lawrence Van Kiersblick, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers. Jamie Tano, our media director, Raul Devanarayanan, our OSIN analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voice of our artist, Kashyab Maheshwari from our online team, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. Pulling together these absolute deep dives really does take this bigger team. And I cannot thank each and every one of them enough for all their work on this one. But all that aside, the Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. 
Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.